Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is your host, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal. Whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health-related topics with other editorial board members, we hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice. Today, I'm joined by Robin Evans-Agnew and Juan Aguilera, members of HPP's editorial board. They are going to help us explore climate justice from the perspectives of medicine and nursing. Before we get started, though, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and have them share where they're calling in from. We can go ahead and start with you, Robin. Hi there. My name is Robin Evans-Agnew. Totally delightful to be here today. I'm an associate professor of nursing and healthcare leadership at the University of Washington, Tacoma. And I'm actually broadcasting from the tribal lands of the Muckleshoot and the Duwamish tribe right now, acknowledging their efforts and their struggles in terms of preserving the environment and advancing human health for centuries and time immemorial. And also my commitment to the land and to health and to solving the great problems of the future for our region. Excellent. Thank you, Robin and Juan. Excellent. Happy to be here. My name is Juan Aguilera. I'm currently a research scientist at the Sean Parker Center for Allergy and Asthma at Stanford University. So I'm calling right now from Palo Alto, California. Happy to be here as well. I mean, my research focuses on air pollution exposure, the effects on immune response, pregnancy, asthma, cardiorespiratory health, and obesity. And also I serve as a council member for the Community Advisory Board for the Bay Area Quality Management District. So I'm happy to be here, discuss a little bit back and forth, and of course, enjoy very much being here. And I think this is a very important topic. So thank you for organizing this. And thank you to the Health Promotion Practice Journal for hosting this podcast. Of course. And we're really excited to have you both here today. And thank you both for introducing yourselves. So why don't we go ahead and jump right in? You both have experience in this field. Robin, you are a nurse and Juan, you're a doctor. So can you help us by defining what is environmental justice and why does it matter to you as a person and as well to you in your profession? Thank you, Arden, for that link in. And I'm totally excited to be here. It's been great doing uh, environmental justice research and work as a nurse. Certainly nurses are on sort of like some of the edges of environmental justice work, but getting a chance to talk to Juan and what's going on with research and air quality is super exciting because for me, environmental justice is defined by everybody has the right to live, work, play, worship in a clean and healthy environment, right? Uh, I would add sustainable to that phrase as well, but this is some of the original ideas of environmental justice came out of the first people of colors movement in the 1990s. Bullard has written extensively and did extensive work on environmental justice. And one of the key things for people to think about, for health promotion practice people to think about, it's not communities being forced to live in areas that are dangerous to their health. It's areas that are dangerous to poor communities citing themselves next to poor communities. So it's the industries, it's the infrastructure that is laid down, the tracks and the freeways, they are all put down near low-income neighborhoods. So these people didn't have a choice. 
they were forced to have to live with environmental toxins and pollutions. Uh, I see one nodding your head. How did I do on that one? Because you're in the middle of that with that in El Paso, right? Definitely. Couldn't say it better myself. Uh, the situations tend to change. And of course, communities from ethnic minorities are usually at a disadvantage. Most of my initial works with air pollution and air quality were in the border community of El Paso, Texas, where I was born and raised. And one of the things, for example, we did a study for children with asthma at an elementary school that was located about 300 feet from a major freeway. And as Robin mentioned, it's not like this school was purposely built near a freeway. It happened on the contrary. The school and neighborhood was already there. And eventually the infrastructure just built itself around these communities, exposing them to heavy traffic in this case. And this happens. I just want to jump in because we got this massive freeway going through our city of Tacoma. And there's a middle school, Guadrioni Middle School, that literally almost the freeway spans out and goes around this little middle school. And the, the toxic air emissions are coming into the, those children's lungs every day. Just because of the positioning of that freeway, that somebody built that and somebody maintained that middle school in the middle of that wave of pollution. Absolutely incredible. But in El Paso, you have a lot of dust as well, right? You have a lot of you have a lot of particulate matter in that pollution. Definitely. Here in El Paso, the central area, it's basically an air basin. So we do get a lot of emissions from dust storms. We get high levels of PM10. But also traffic roads emit like the PM2.5 particles, which are smaller particles going to the respiratory system. But also near the border, there's a lot of traffic just because of the international bridges. So other communities are exposed also to diesel trucks just idling, trying to cross the border bridge and then getting these smaller particles. So there was another school that we wanted to research that was also located very close near the, the border bridge. And in this case, this school, like the playground, you can see the diesel trucks just idling outside of this area, just trying to cross the bridge. So it's just overwhelming to see like all these things happening in our own neighborhoods and us not realizing what are the long-term effects and that's when we start thinking, okay, beyond doing the research and knowing what are the effects, what can we do about it? So definitely, this is why having these conversations is essential. Yeah, and it, make, it reminds you, too, of the sort of systemic nature of it, right? Every single new thing intended to protect us from something on the border, right? And so that's another delay. It's another administrative delay. Those trucks are sitting there pumping out poison that the kids are breathing right there. Idling is the big issue here. Do you have a basin effect as well in El Paso? Did you get a, like a temperature inversions in the winter? Do you, do you get that kind of thing in El Paso? Because that's kind of what happens up in our area. We get a cold air blanket kind of sitting on top of our area and everything inside the type flax. This is the area where I work now, Arden, is really trying to investigate how to be a planetary health practitioner, planetary health nurse in the type flats, because all of those emissions and the diesel and the wood smoke emissions, we have a lot of wood smoke as well, just gets trapped in there. And people don't think wood smoke is bad at all, but it's really actually full of, full of horrible substances, especially the PM 2.5, these fine particulates that get into you. And well, is it temperature inversions in, in El Paso? We do get the same effects. 
the city of El Paso, uh, it's also near the border with Ciudad Juarez in Mexico. So there's also mountains that are surrounding the area. We have the Franklin Mountains in the Northwest area and also Cerro Bola from the Sierra Madre on the south from Ciudad Juarez. So yeah, we do get this basin effect where we see the temperature inversion. And then there are days when you can see that the air, it just seems murky, like, like as if you were, if you have like glasses with fog, it, it's a similar effect. And we were driving the other day through the area and we were just noticing that affecting like the mountaintops, also like the areas near downtown and below. And it's just incredible to see that we are living in these conditions. We are bringing the air. And even though we're not noticing, the long-term consequences of this might be leading to other effects. Yeah, so talk about that, because I think this is absolutely critical to certainly my work has been my work in air quality. But when we first started out, I worked with kids with asthma and uh, published a paper in health promotion practice that we asked kids to talk about these kinds of things. And one of the things that came up in this participatory is a photo voice study. One of the things that came up that really struck me, and I, we didn't have a photo of this, but we had a story of a kid talking about this, but which is really like, you know, they, they're going to school and they watch this parent pull a toddler right behind an exhaust of a car as they were going in. And they started to talk about this toddler's breathing this gas now. They may not necessarily have a reaction or have asthma right now, but it, it can be cumulative over time. And we were thinking at that point in time, this was 10, 15 years ago, it was probably asthma and other things. But the more we kept looking for systemic inflammation, there's other sorts of responses that the body is doing, right? Exactly. And I think this is where the conversation has been going. Several research has outlined that the effects of air pollution, it's not just of concern for the respiratory system. The Korean classification system just goes with the size of the particles, depending on like PM10, if they're less than 10 micrometers, PM2.5, less than 2.5 micrometers. This is like a fraction of, of just comparing the particle to a hair strand. We breathe in these particles. There's also smaller, even like ultrafine particles, which are 0.1 microns. Yeah. Go into the alveoli. We breathe it in. They go into our bloodstream. So depending on what these particles are, our bodies are reacting to them and they're causing systemic inflammation. They're causing also oxidation. So we're seeing that these effects not only affect respiratory, but also cardiovascular system. So some of the new numbers that World Health Organization has been working has been attributing deaths from air pollution to heart disease, myocardial infarction, also, there's new neurovascular diseases that have been linked to air pollution, diabetes, and one of the work that we're doing whoa, here whoa, at Stanford whoa. University. Go ahead. Go ahead. So we got to stop at diabetes because this is not no. People do not make this connection. They do in the air quality world. But Arden, in the health promotion world out there, when we're talking diabetes, you're talking the main solutions for diabetes is exercise, right? And diet. But they never talk about avoiding bad air days, right? So when there's an air quality index in our area, right, and they say it's bad for sensitive groups, I bet people with diabetes are not really listening to that and not understanding the connection between how does that work metabolically? What's the pathophysiology of the PM2.5 exposure and diabetes? 
Can you explain that in layperson's terms? How does that work? Well, first of all, you mentioned a great point about the paradox between how important it is to do outdoor exercise, but then also the fact that you get exposed sometimes to air pollution conditions that are not as healthy can trigger this. Like you don't know if it's good or bad to do exercise outside, but first of all, just becoming aware that so far the benefits of physical activity still outweigh the ones of air pollution with gooder quality, but with better quality, it, it's good to be mindful of what's the condition in your neighborhood. Systemically, these particles are still reacting with, let's say, chemical pathways that are involving our metabolism. So it's not necessarily that these fine particles are just going to go and cause more diabetes, but they attack the pathways that are in charge of our major metabolism. So in this case, these particles attach to some of the blood cells, they get transported to different systems where our immune system might react towards them. And then they might be some effects long-term where like the synthesis of some of our hormones, of some of like how we transform cholesterol, how we transform blood sugars are affected. And in the long term, it's going to lead to the effects where we're going to be more susceptible to the long-term consequences of chronic diseases. I mean, diabetes, we know it mostly has to do with the regulation and production of insulin, but also how our tissues react to some of the compounds and the insulin. So if our tissues are exposed to triggers, to pollutants, and they're always in this heightened response, then they're going to be more susceptible when they're also exposed to the things that cause diabetes. So you've got huge inequities, right, in diabetes management and in asthma. A lot of times asthma is, because uh, I've worked a lot for the American Lung Association and in, and in the nonprofit disease world, there's a lot of siloing, right? There's people who fight diabetes and there's people who fight asthma and they both fight each other for the same part of money to do work on, right? So it's kind of crazy, right? But how does that, I, I keep thinking about how can the work of justice bridge those different ideas, especially with now us understanding that particulate matter, air pollution is broad spectrum, right? It attacks a number of body systems, multi-system stuff. And I just, I remember you were doing some metabolic stuff, looking at the effects of metabolic pathways, because that, that leads to a number of other sorts of different disease courses, right? Inside particulate matter. That's correct, Robin. And I think it boils down to prevention. Right. When we talk about environmental justice, we want to level up the field for everybody to have access to better health conditions. Because being in a healthier environment, it's going to mitigate the effects of chronic exposure to all these triggers. Sadly, here, we usually focus on treating the diseases once they happen. So we don't tend to take action until someone has diabetes or has asthma. But we need to go back and think about prevention. At the end, it's going to serve everybody to try to prevent or mitigate the effects of chronic disease. It's going to reduce the economic burden on the country. And by doing environmental justice efforts, we're mitigating those effects. We're giving people a better chance to have healthier and longer lives 
And I think that's important. It's not just about living a long time. It's also about the quality of life. Yeah. And the more time that we can enjoy it by being healthy, by being in an environment that promotes better health, better quality, I think that's where the conversations need to go. So can we switch a little bit to climate change and climate justice? Because I, I think that, Arden, you asked me to define environmental justice, and environmental justice is sort of like at the root of climate justice. But in terms of what you're seeing, one now with fossil fuel-induced particulate matter that we're seeing out there, right? Diesel, other types of combustion engines producing a lot of this, as well as more dust coming from fields drying out, right? So you have, I, I love the term in Alaska, they, I first heard of the term fugitive dust. I always thought fugitive, they're running away from something, but it's just out there. It's not captured by anything and it's sitting in the air. That could be like larger particles because the ones you can see are the more likely to be PM10. But then you've also got this added impact now with climate change, with more burning, more fires. You're in California. You've seen tons more fires. It's like the fire season has just sort of exploded to being a year round fire season. How does that kind of begin to be an added effect of oppressing particular communities more than other communities? How how do you see that playing out? For me, it was an eye opener. Once I started here at Stanford University, wildfires was not something that we get in Paso del Norte or Paso area, just because it's more of a desert environment. So while our concerns were usually the dust storms that we get when there's high winds in California and mostly the, the West Coast, people are always concerned about the wildfire season because it's been getting larger, the climate, it's been getting higher temperatures. Uh, I think from the last 20 years, about 17 of the last 20 have recorded the highest temperatures and they've been like the, the hottest ever. Yeah, That is concerning, especially because during the wildfire season, it means that the fires will be burning for a longer time. They will be more difficult to contain. And there are communities and some of them from like ethnic minorities and lower income that are located near areas that usually get smoke from these wildfires. These communities have been struggling with these things for the past 30 to 20 years as they've seen the increasing wildfires. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until the fires from 2020 that the whole Bay Area just opened their eyes to the problem. I know many of you have seen the pictures of an orange sky covering the Golden Gate Bridge. And for many, it was just overwhelming to see that this is happening to everybody and it's happening in areas where it didn't used to happen. So a lot of people and also a lot of people in power started to notice this. And that's where we need to keep pushing. That's where we need to let them know, you know what, we need to address this because this is only going to get worse if we don't address it and it's going to affect even more people. It's one of the biggest ironies inside the climate justice conversations. I was over at COP26, which is the Congress of Parties 26th meeting to work on climate change. There's a number of different sort of Congress of Parties, but this was the one principally setting forth new agreements for reducing carbon, carbon, carbon gases. And 
a good friend and colleague, Ed Douglas, who's an outdoor journalist over in Britain, said that there really were two conferences going on. There was one that was inside the gates and there was one that was outside the gates. And that was pretty much all of the climate justice people. And they were outside of the gates. They were, you know, not, you know, some sometimes they had observer status, some different groups. But really, the central argument around climate justice is that those who contribute the least to climate change are suffering the worst effects, right? Because when you ask people to exercise in clean environments, they can't get out of their neighborhoods. They maybe don't have reliable transportation. They don't have other ways, other means to get that kind of exercise. And we already know that Latino communities and other communities are more burdened by diabetes and asthma and, and difficulties managing their complex lives because of a variety of structural forces, including poverty, including racism, all of these other sorts of things. These intersections kind of come together to create this perfect storm for climate injustices when you have a wildfire event like that. I don't know, Arden, where you're living. Did you have the wildfires come through for you? Yeah, I'm living in San Jose. And so we definitely had days where the sky was orange and red and days where we weren't allowed to go outside. And I remember it was really, really warm and we couldn't open any windows to cool down the house because it was too dangerous outside. And it was just a really bizarre thing. And it was one of the first times that it was such a visual confrontation with the state of the earth and air quality. We've always been aware of no burn days, but this was just a really big visual reminder that this is an ongoing issue that really needs to be solved you know, sooner rather than later. I think we all know that, but it was the first time that it was so personal. And as we talk about this and Robin, you're talking about being at the summit, how can we tackle this challenge, whether it's climate justice or just the way that these communities are continually underinvested or targeted by these larger corporations that continue to put folks in danger? And as Juan was saying, they're yeah. having to make this decision between health recommendations of what's the least harmful of the two options. So I want to kind of turn the page of Given that, how are we tackling this? What can we do? What does the future look like? I'm, I'm looking at one. I, I have some ideas, but w w what do you think, Juan? Do you want to respond to that first? Well, I think the first things we need to do is advocacy. Uh, been fortunate to be part of some groups that are addressing climate change, each in their own way. And it's just been refreshing to see all these groups coming together and finding ways to have the conversations, lead protests, talk to officials, organize bipartisan efforts. For example, Climate Health Now has been doing some work involving medical professionals and health allies and hosting monthly meetings in which they try to engage with people from different zones in California. But now they're trying to include people from other states and collaborate with other efforts. There's also the Climate Reality course where I've been serving as a mentor. This is an organization that was funded by former Vice President Al Gore. And he has a model kind of like where they train the trainers and it's expanding the message about the challenges we face in climate change, but also the successes and the things to look forward to, like better technology, uh, better production of clean energies, information from countries that are developing newer technologies and implementing wind power, solar power to replace some of their old infrastructure. So definitely there is ways to be involved. 
Um, then also here I was fortunate to join a community advisory council by the Bay Area Air Management District. And it's just been refreshing that these big companies that are organizations trying to regulate and offer better air quality and better infrastructure are now reaching out to the community, talking to gatekeepers, community leaders, and involving them in the decisions. So I think that's key. Like it's an effort where we need to reach out to groups, but also it, it's good to see that some organizations are trying to do their own reach out to the community members. So we're all in this together. And the more we interact, the more we can amplify the message. I think we're getting into the right track. I think that is the challenge, is how do we work together? We've often been, and I'm so grateful for Kathleen Rowe and Arden to kind of bring us together, bring a nurse and a physician together to have this podcast today, because we have been so siloed into different places that there's an assumption that we can't work together across inside the medical profession. I think in health promotion practice, there's been a, there's a real effort to kind of coalesce a bunch of different voices of people who are concerned and interested about patient empowerment, transformation of communities, social systems, the social determinants of health, and, and, and those other sorts of things. All of those sorts of things need to go together. But the only way to really address it is to have us be able to work across different disciplines and different sciences. And that's, for me, been the big challenge in, inside of nursing, because once you start listening to climate change and to the climate change science, you realize that we are all interconnected with the health of the planet. And so the next obvious step is for me to ask myself as a nurse is how do I care for both people and planet? And I swear to goodness, first time ever, two days ago, I'm having a little argy-bargy with our local city council because they've got a map of all of the wooded areas, all of the areas with tree cover in Tacoma. And it's great. It's a super, super site. And they've mapped tree cover and they looked at heat islands and they're thinking about the right to live in a safe temperature, right? And how there's inequities in that because in low-income neighborhoods, there's less tree cover. I'm not even sure whether you've done a podcast on this, but it's super, super interesting kind of public health field, emerging field. Some group out of Portland done some really good work on that where you, you locate a bunch of temperature sensors around a city and then you're able to show, oh yeah, low-income neighborhoods, they don't have any trees. They're all rentals or whatever. And the landlords just don't kiver flying who about planting a tree out there so the temperature rises so I'm, I'm arguing with them about where are all these trees gone in this particular map because I know those trees aren't there anymore and I write into the website I say I'm a planetary health nurse first time ever I was sort of like labeled myself as that it's the same PHN as public health nurse, but I'm just looking <laughs> myself as a planetary health nurse because we have to care for people and planet if we're all connected and that those who are causing the least amount of this are suffering the greatest burdens. These are the frontline and the fenceline communities, right? Frontline communities, they're the ones who are already bearing the burden of racism, classism, sexism, gender bias, you know, all of those other sorts of things as well as they're having to live in neighborhoods that are more at risk for these events, for that kind of work. So, I mean, I think that that's, that's partly where I think medicine, nursing, 
respiratory therapy, you know, pharmacy, all the other sorts of health professions, we need to kind of collaborate and work together. I'm so glad to hear that you're working with those particular organizations where there's one inside sort of like it's a it's a hospital based, it's a healthcare system based advocacy group called Healthcare Without Harm. They are working quite closely on this. And we've got something in nursing called Nurses Drawdown, which is again focused on looking at climate change itself. And then largely there's a group called the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments, and they've been doing some great stuff. They have another great podcast and they've been doing other work. And that's who I've been working with. But often people are better able to talk about climate change than climate justice. That's what I've found. They conflate the two and they're really kind of different. And so that's really what we've done as nurses and what we did for COP26 was to pull together a set of, you know, I think 31 principles of climate justice kind of split across ecology, ideologies, social systems, economies, and politics to kind of say, this is where we need to be looking at for upstream. These are the changes that need to happen. But I think it's a huge challenge and it won't work unless we come together in conversations like this. Definitely, Robin. I would echo that. It's amazing. And I have a lot of respect for what the nursing community is doing right now. And I mean, you guys are that first contact with the patient that's on you guys. And it's just amazing to see how bringing that to the people. And as you said, it being a planetary health nurse means that you're the first contact with the planet. And we need that. We need to be aware of our environment, the things that we can do. We need to work together and also reflect on the personal level, the things that we can do, what things can we do that are sustainable, things like recycling, not using disposables. It's, as they say, that little small grain of sand, but if we work together, we can start to change those trends. And definitely there's things that we need to tackle this at all levels, individual, interpersonal, community policy, because we all share this world and it's the only one we have. So we we need to be aware that making the environment better for everybody at the end is going to help us out too. Yeah, there's a really nice framework that we've been using when we've been developing these climate justice principles called the Just Transition Framework. (laughs) It's, It's really close to nursing's heart and to healthcare's heart as well, because it really talks about moving from an extraction mindset to a regeneration mindset, right? And sometimes healthcare becomes all about extraction, right? What kind of labs can you get out of this patient? What particular organ are you working on with this particular patient? But we know that we don't heal wounds. We create the right condition for the wound to heal. And the wound heals from the outside in, right? We know that we've got to create the right conditions for wound healing, right? Right there with a particular patient. That same sort of principle can be expanded to thinking around the harms and the traumas that we've caused the earth, right? And trying to listen to and spend better time building relationships with each other, especially with people who've been indigenous and have a range of indigenous knowledges about healing the earth and working with that. So we, we try and cover that inside our, our climate justice principles as well. But it is it is heady work moving forward, Arvin, that's for sure. Definitely. And I appreciate, Robin, 
your perspective and wrapping that idea up. And I want to open the floor one more time before we close out to Juan, if you had any closing thoughts on the road ahead and anything that Robin has said in terms of even just the topic of environmental justice versus climate change, any closing thoughts? Well, definitely there's a lot of people that have the right mindset. I think the idea of working together and collaborating, it's been moving us in many directions, but with a center focus on how to address the climate change. There's still people that may not be aware about the consequences. So I think reaching out to them, it's important, but also with an open mind and open arms. I mean, they say, why is this the country that needs to lead it? Well, the U.S. has been leading the world in many aspects. And I think we have the opportunity to continue to show leadership by working together. Sadly, some of the things have been very political, but I mean, we're all sharing the same environment. And I think leading bipartisan efforts, uh, reaching out to the right, to the left, to the middle, it's important for us to be together, to find that common ground where everybody wants to live in harmony, live in peace. And I think we can do that and move forward to, so we can ensure that everybody has the justice they deserve and a clean environment. So I'm glad to see that these conversations are moving forward. The research is getting there as well. And also the policymakers and the people in power have noticed, are listening, and we're heading there. So let's be hopeful in the future, but also let's do our part. And I think with that, we're gonna be in a better set. Absolutely, perfect. And thank you both so much for your wisdom and your input that you've given today. I'm really appreciative of the way that we're able to talk across fields and just the knowledge that you're able to provide on this topic because it is something that can be very divisive. And I think that your perspectives are really valuable today. So thank you so much for your time and space and sharing space with me. And that is all for us today. So have a great rest of your day and thank you all for listening in. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health dash promotion dash practice. Take care and have a great day.